0: Reading is taken from John chapter 20, starting at verse 24 and finishing at verse 31. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
1: Mute. Ah, there we go. Uh, Keep that open, Uh, page 1089. And you'll have noticed that this is a passage about going from doubt to belief. It's a famous passage about a famous doubter who famously believes. And uh, you'll see the passage ends with verse 31, these things are written that you may believe. These things are written that you may believe. Okay, so this is in front of us so that we can have a Thomas experience. Do you believe that? that the risen Jesus can encounter us and we may believe. And you might think to yourself, does that mean believe for the first time or does it mean go on believing? And the answer is yes. That's what it means. It means whether you are doubting the lordship of Jesus right now, you can go from doubt to belief tonight as this sort of one-off thing. But also, if you've been trusting Jesus for many years now... These, these things have been written so that you can go on believing in Jesus. And that's what you need. That's what I need this week. We all have doubts of one sort or another, and we all need to go on believing. So should we pray now that Jesus encounters each of us with his risen glory and that we can have an experience of him so that we might believe. Let's uh, pray. Our Father, we need you now. We need you to speak to us, to talk to us, to encounter us. We need you to speak into the depths of our being, and we pray that you would do that now through your word. Help us to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, and may he conquer our unbelief, that all of us might cry out, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is it that would make you believe? I once asked an atheist friend that, and he'd clearly been asked the question before, because as soon as I said, what would make you believe, he had an instant answer. He said, I would believe in God if the stars rearranged in the heavens and spelt out the Ten Commandments, then I'd believe. I don't know where you set the bar for belief in God, but my friend was setting it to galactic heights, right? Right? He wanted stars to be rearranged in the heavens, to spell out the Ten Commandments, and then he would believe. And actually, as he said that to me, I had two thoughts that were sort of jockeying for, for prominence in, in how I was going to respond to him, which is very unusual for me. I, I average about two thoughts per month, but I'd had about five, copy, uh, five coffees that day. So, you know, and as we'll see, miracles do happen, right? But I had these two thoughts, and, and, and the first thought I had was to say to him, you know what, actually... The stars in their current arrangement are already miraculous. We're going to see some of that tonight, actually. The current arrangement of the heavens and your existence as a skeptic looking up at those heavens, that is already a miracle, orders of magnitude more improbable than the stars spelling out some Hebrew words. Uh, Emmanuel Kant once said that uh, if the stars came out every thousand years, we would consider it the most astonishing miracle. The fact they come out every night just sort of makes us contemptuous of it, really. And so I I was thinking about saying to my friends, look, the stars are already miraculous. You don't need to wonder what you would do in the face of an astonishing miracle. You're living in one. I was going to go down that route, but then I thought better of it, and and instead, I, I voiced the second thought that I had. The second thought that I had was this. I just wanted to ask him, would you like such a God? Just imagine it. Imagine there is a God up there, and he uses his omnipotent power just to spell out commands in the sky to make you bow. Would you like such a God? And that's what I said to him. Would you like such a God? And he said, no, I could never like God. But if he proved to me his existence in an incontrovertible way, then I guess I'd have to bow grudgingly. And at that stage, my friend and I had great common ground because the God he was talking about, I didn't like much either, right? The God who merely exists to rearrange the heavens to make you a good boy or a good girl, I don't particularly warm to that God either. But is that the way that belief comes in the Bible? Does God have to spell out his commands and then make you bow? Is that what going from unbelief to belief looks like, looking up to the stars and receiving a message? Be a good boy, be a good girl. Is that the kind of proof that would make you believe? Is that the kind of gods that you could believe in? Well, here in John chapter 20, Thomas encounters something very different that takes him from doubt to belief. Here's the story. Verse 24, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That's the week before Easter. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's extreme, don't you think? Put your hand into his side? Oh my goodness. Uh, He's a bit weird, isn't he, Thomas? Don't you think? I mean, if I was in hospital and uh, you came to visit me, And I said, yeah, I'm feeling really crook. And you said, unless I put my finger into your wounds, I will not... Like, you have no visiting rights. You're a creepy individual. Don't visit me, okay? This is odd, don't you think? Why, Why does Thomas want to put his hand into Jesus' side? Well, because he wants to know that the very Jesus who went through death is the one who has come out the other side. That's what he really wants to know. He doesn't just want to have a freaky experience... He doesn't just want to know that there is some kind of power that is bigger than death. He wants to know that his friend has taken on death and fought it to the death and come out the other side as its victor. He he wants to know that Jesus, his battle-scarred friend, has the victory. That's what's going to take him from doubt to belief. Because according to the Bible... It's one of two things. Either Jesus is Lord because he conquers the grave, or if Jesus is not Lord, death must be Lord. Right? That's, that's the kind of the logic of the Bible. The logic of the Bible is death is Lord until or unless someone gains the victory over death. And if someone gains the victory over death, then I guess that someone has to be Lord. But until that happens, unless that happens, death must be Lord. And Thomas, even for a week after Easter, he spends that week thinking that death is Lord. And then he encounters Jesus. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in their house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is stunning. I love this. You see, like one week ago, everybody in this room had either deserted, denied, or betrayed Jesus. You know, on that Easter weekend, none of these disciples had covered themselves in glory at all, had they? They had left their master for dead, hadn't they? Jesus stood alone in that hour, and all his so-called friends ran from him, deserted, denied, and betrayed him. And now Jesus tracks them down from beyond the grave. These worthless friends who'd sold him out. He tracks down his worthless friends from beyond the grave, and what does he say to them? Peace. Isn't that beautiful? Peace. That's what he says every time he meets someone after he rises from the dead no matter how far people had run from him, no matter how they had denied him, how they had deserted him, still he tracks them down to give them peace. That's the sort of thing that might start to win your heart, mightn't it? The sort of God who gets through death, has to take on death because you and I are such sinners. He has to take on death and yet he does it for us so that through death and beyond death he can offer us his peace peace he says to them and he shows them his hands and sides verse 27 And he said to thomas put your finger here see my hands reach out your hand and put it into my side stop doubting and believe thomas had thought that death was lord and you can kind of understand that can't you Death has won every single battle it's been engaged in, hasn't it? Death is the undisputed champion of the world, don't you think? In every single fight, death has always won. And Thomas might have held out some hope that maybe Jesus was the one, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he really is going to gain victory over the grave. And yet Thomas knew that on Good Friday, Jesus died, just like you and I. One of those hopeless moments, isn't it? When you, you think Jesus is the one and then Good Friday, he's killed himself. It's a bit like if you're sinking in quicksand. Can you imagine it? You're sinking in quicksand and, you, and you, shell out, you shout out, help, help! And suddenly this rescuer appears and you think, fantastic, here is help. And the rescuer dives in in front of you and sinks like a stone. Like in that moment, what are you feeling? I mean, you're sad for him, right? You're also quite sad for yourself, aren't you? Because that was your last hope. This is what the disciples were feeling. They, they had hoped in Jesus. They thought he was the one. And then he sinks like a stone on Good Friday. I guess death is Lord. Well, death is Lord unless death is defeated. Do you get how that works? Death being Lord until it's defeated. Do you ever play sort of computer games and you, 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 you get into level one of the computer game and you've got to, you know, collect all the rings or all the power-ups or all the mushrooms or whatever it is and you get to the end of level one and there's usually some kind of bad guy, isn't there? And you've got to take on the bad guy and that's, you know, that usually takes a little while. You usually get killed a few times before you figure out how you kill the, the bad guy in level one and then you get to level two and you get the rings and the power-ups and the mushrooms and you get to the end of level two and there's a bad guy at the end of level two, isn't there? And if you get past him, then there's level 3, level 4, level 5, level 6, level 7, and you get to level 10. And the bad guy on level 10 is this triple-headed, electric, you know, nuclear-powered monster, indestructible. And you think, no one can get past this monster. That's death in the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the New Testament calls death the final enemy. It's the big boss. Never lost a battle. The undefeated champion of the world, that's death. Could anything be bigger than death? What do you think? seems to me, unless Jesus beat death, there is no other help for us. No one else is coming. No one else has even claimed to score the victory over death the way that Jesus has. He is our one and only hope. What do you think? Do you think Jesus beat death on Easter Sunday? What do you think? I wonder how you would go about assessing that truth. Well, Thomas got an encounter with Christ, and, uh, and I want to show you three things that should make you believe that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and that that should give you great hope that death is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Here are three things, three H's that should make you believe that Jesus scored the winner over death. The heavens, history, and him. So first of all, we're going to think about the heavens, okay? In order to talk about Easter Sunday, I'm going to go to 30,000 feet. In fact, I'm going to go cosmic to give you a picture of who God is. Because sometimes I think our thinking about Easter Sunday is far too narrow, and really we need to go cosmic if we're going to understand Easter. So first of all, to prove to you that there is a life from the dead kind of God, I want to show you that this is a life from the dead kind of universe. The world that we live in is an Easter kind of universe that points to an Easter kind of a god. Let me take you through this about the heavens. Uh, Here are four miracles that science will tell you about that make no sense unless there is a life from the dead kind of god. I'll talk you through it. The first miracle that science tells you about is that everything has come from nothing. Okay, Everything has come from nothing. Have you ever thought about what... uh, An absurd miracle that would be if there was not a God to work it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Nothing, 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 Then everything for no reason. That is a more absurd miracle than all the religions of the world have ever dreamt up. See, I happen to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. This would be the virgin birth of the cosmos, and without a virgin. It's like the ultimate magic trick, isn't it? Nothing up the sleeve, no sleeve, no magician. Just pure magic, out of nowhere, and for no reason. Can you believe there is no life from the dead God? How on earth are we even existing if there is not a life from the dead God? Everything from nothing points you to the fact That there is an Easter kind of God, a life from the dead kind of a God. So the first thing, the first thing that the heavens are shouting to you is that everything has come from nothing. And that makes most sense if there's an Easter kind of a God. And then there's been order in this world that's come from chaos. You know, if we have indeed come from an explosion, this is the most orderly explosion that there's ever been. If your parents tell you that your room looks like a bomb has hit it, they are not complimenting you on its orderly status. You know, they, they are telling you that it is not well-ordered for life, okay? Because when bombs hit things, it usually leads to death and not life, right? And yet, we've come from an explosion that has created an incredibly orderly universe. Did you know that if we exploded faster than we currently uh, have exploded if we exploded faster than we did we would fling out into heat death and if we exploded slower than we did we'd crunch back in on ourselves did you know that and so we're actually poised not too fast not too slow just right and you ask the question what is this goldilocks range in which the universe is not too fastly expanding not too slowly expanding, but just right. Actually, you've got to get that number to within 1 in 10 to the power 120, okay? 10 to the power 120 is a 1 with 120 zeros after it. Can you imagine a fraction 1 over 1 with 120 zeros on it? That's, that's how narrow this range is. Not too fast, not too slow, just right. Somehow this universe has exploded into order. There has been order coming from the chaos. How extraordinary. You know, I I happen to believe in the miracles of Jesus. What are the miracles of Jesus? The miracles of Jesus are when the Creator steps into the planet and He brings order out of chaos. Maybe there's a storm and He stills the storm. Maybe there's sickness and He heals the sickness. He brings order out of chaos. Okay, that's a miracle. It's a miracle when Jesus brings order out of chaos. But at least with Jesus, you've got a miracle maker. You've got somebody to actually work the miracle. We live in a universe in which incredible order has come out of chaos. And do you really believe that there's no miracle maker? That's far more absurd. To get rid of the Easter God is to make your life far more full of absurdities okay to believe in the god of easter is to make sense of what would otherwise be an utter absurdity so everything's come from nothing order has come from chaos you know life has come from non-life isn't that extraordinary i happen to believe that on easter sunday the non-living jesus came to life what a miracle What a miracle. On Easter Sunday, I believe Jesus, not living, started living. What a miracle. But of course, if you go with the atheistic story of the world, life, all of life, has emerged from non life and for no reason. Wow, what a resurrection! That, that is a resurrection orders of magnitude more improbable than anything that Christians claim about Easter Sunday. It's the most stunning resurrection story, and there's no God to have worked the miracle. Can you believe that? Why would you believe that? Yes, I believe that life came from non-life, because I believe in a God of Easter, a God of life from the dead. And he makes sense of why life might come from non-life but if you get rid of the god of easter again you have to embrace more absurdities so everything's come from nothing orders come from chaos life has come from non-life and then science will tell you that minds have come from mindless matter isn't that extraordinary minds have come from mindless matter why does this two pounds of grey matter between my ears? How is it able to even process the mysteries of the cosmos and communicate with you if it's just come from inorganic chemicals? How is that even possible? One atheistic scientist has said that the mystery of consciousness emerging is, is like the mystery of uh, turning the, the water of brain chemistry into the wine of consciousness. And there's an atheist saying, we just don't know how that happens. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Well, but maybe there's a miracle maker. Maybe there's an Easter God, a God of life from the dead that can bring minds out of mindless matter. You see, to embrace the God of Easter is not to take a leap into the dark of absurdity. To embrace Jesus is to make sense of your world without him. That's where the absurdities lie. So do you believe in the God of Easter? Do you believe that there could possibly be something that's bigger than death? The heavens are already declaring that to you. Of course there's something bigger than death. The God who has brought this universe into being is a resurrection kind of a God who brings everything from nothing, order from chaos, life from non-life, and consciousness from mindless matter. The heavens are telling you that Easter is true. And then secondly, history. History will tell you that Easter is true. Let me share with you some facts about the first century that that pretty much everybody agrees, whether they're Christian or Jewish or atheistic. Um, Everyone kind of agrees to these basic facts. Jesus was born around the year dot. He uh, had a bunch of followers. He was involved in a great controversy in around the year AD 30. He was put on trial by both the Jewish and the Roman authorities. He was executed under a capital charge under the reign of Pontius Pilate. He was killed He was buried in a tomb that was public and people knew its whereabouts. And three days later, that tomb was empty. The body was never found. And his followers went on to have experiences of the risen Jesus, which lasted for 40 days and then stopped when they said that he had returned to heaven. Those are the facts. Pretty much nobody disputes those facts. And then you think, well, what's the explanation of those things? And you might think, well, maybe he he just swooned on the cross and then sort of revived in the cool of the tomb and somehow rolled a massive stone away and overpowered a Roman guard and showed up to the disciples as a semi-crucified man and somehow inspired them to believe in victory over the grave. Uh, That seems like you're embracing more absurdity, doesn't it? Maybe the story that the Old Testament had been telling, the story that Jesus himself had been telling, maybe that was true. That he is indeed the God of life from the dead. And he's one. See, what explains history best is the fact that Easter is true and Jesus is Lord. And then there's the history that's happened since the first century. You know, since the first century, there's been this incredible explosion of the church. The church is the largest sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen, most diverse community the world has ever seen, and it's growing all the time. There are more people in the church today than there were yesterday, and there'll be more people tomorrow, and there'll be more people the next day, and the next day. There is an exploding, expanding universe called the church, and if you trace it all back to its big bang, when did that happen? 80-30. Something happened in the first century that meant this, this group of no-hopers that were following a, a loser called Jesus who died in his early 30s, somehow that has exploded into life as the greatest phenomenon the world has ever seen. How do you explain the history? Well, again, if you, if you walk away from the Christian story, you're embracing more absurdities. The thing that explains history is that Easter is true and Jesus is Lord. And then finally, him. You know what's really going to convince you that Easter is true and Jesus is Lord? When you meet him. When you encounter Jesus himself. Do you ever play that game about superheroes? Uh, lots of kids play the game about superheroes, don't they? Uh, which superhero would win in a battle between this guy and that guy? You know, I think that guy would win because he's got, you know these superpowers. No, I think that guy would win because he's superpower. He's got these superpowers. You can do that with Jesus and death, you know. You can pick up the Bible. You can start reading about Jesus. You can ask for God to reveal himself to you through Jesus. And at some stage, you start to ask the question, do I think Jesus would beat death in a battle or do I think death would beat Jesus? And at some stage, you start to think to yourself, you know what? I know that death has never lost a battle. I I know how big death is. But I think think Jesus might be bigger. I think he might be. I think he might have scored the victory over death. And then you you start to realize that Jesus is Lord. and, And you start to say what Thomas said. Verse 28. Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. What a moment. And you think to yourself, what is Thomas looking at when he declares Jesus to be Lord and God? What is he looking at? You know, he's not looking at the stars, is he? He's actually looking at scars. Isn't that interesting? He's not looking at the, the God over and above us who tells us to bow. He's actually looking at our battle-scarred brother who's taken on the fierce enemy that would otherwise devour us. And he's fought that enemy to the death and he's risen up. And even though I caused his death, he says, peace to me. And he reaches out his hands that are still bearing the scars, these war wounds that assure me of a love that's taken him to hell and back. And when I see him, then I say, my Lord and my God. It stuns me to see that it's the scars that actually convert Thomas. Edward Shalita wrote this poem, Jesus of the Scars, and he finishes the poem this way. He says, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone You come to see Jesus for who he is, this battle-scarred warrior that loves you to hell and back. Have you come to see that? Well, maybe you start to see there's something bigger than death. And that something is not just a force over you. He is the lover of your soul who loves you more than his own life. And when you start to realize that, you start to say, my Lord and my God. Is that starting to happen in you? Starting to say, my Lord and My God. And you think to yourself, well, it's easy for Thomas, right? You know, Thomas got to see Jesus. But actually, Jesus says, what we're doing tonight, it's even better than what Thomas got. Did you notice that in verse 29? And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We are blessed. You think, how can that be? How can we be blessed? How can we, how can we have an experience that's better than Thomas's? That's what verse 30 is there for. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe. Do you see? Thomas sees and believes, and Jesus says, Ah, it's better, it's better to believe without seeing. How is that possible? These things are written that you might believe. It's amazing. On on Easter Sunday, Jesus goes around and, and. You know the the way he reveals himself to people is not the way I would do it. He's so much cooler than me. You know, I would blow the opportunity. You know, if you had the opportunity to spoil your own funeral, you'd probably mess it up, right? Jesus is just so cool. You you, you see him, uh, you know, in the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter twenty-four. There are two followers of Jesus, and they they don't know that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he just he just walks alongside them, and he just asks them. So, what was written in, in the Bible then? And he takes them on a Bible study. It's such a cool way of doing it. I I think I would have thrown off the the cloak and gone, it's me! Ah, the look on your face. Like, I would have ruined it. But Jesus, when he rises from the dead, he takes people through a Bible study. Why? Because written down here in black and white for all time, you you can rest your soul on this. You know, if, if we had arranged that here at Bishop Hannington Church in Hove, Jesus Christ would appear this Sunday evening, wouldn't that? I mean, that would be quite the Sunday, wouldn't it, you know? It was worth getting through the snow, wasn't it? You know, worth getting through the snow. Jesus of Nazareth showed up, right? But you'd go to school tomorrow, you'd go to work tomorrow, and you'd say, yeah, I saw Jesus last night. What do you think your work colleagues would say? What would your friends say at school? They'd say, they do it with mirrors. You naive Christians. And you'd start to doubt, wouldn't you? Even if you'd seen, even if you'd met Jesus Christ, you'd start to doubt and you'd need to see him again in a week. And then you'd need to see him again and again and again and again. And Jesus says, it's better this way. Written down in black and white for all time because here it is, written down when it's two in the morning and you've lost your girlfriend, lost your boyfriend, lost your job, lost your health. You can meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture. This is actually Jesus' way of meeting Jesus. Even when he was right there on Easter Sunday, he revealed himself through his word. So that gathering together around his word, it's not an inferior way of meeting Jesus. You might think, I just wish I could have a Thomas experience. You'd need to have a thousand Thomas experiences. Jesus gives you something better. And in his word, you can meet him. And you can conclude, I think there's something bigger than death. I think Jesus is Lord. So what about you? Do you think he's Lord? Or do you think death is Lord? Those are your only options. Those really are your only options. Because no one else has brought victory over the grave. No one else. No one else gives you hope for these bodies and this world. Johnny Erickson Tardo was a quadriplegic for most of her life since the age of 17. She's now in her 50s and she said only Jesus promises me a new spinal cord. Only Jesus gives you hope over the grave. Hope for these bodies and this world. It's either Jesus or death. Which is it? Do you think Jesus is Lord? I'm just going to say a prayer in a second and it's just a prayer that says Jesus I now see you are Lord. Will you be my Lord? Will you be my God? It's the sort of prayer that you can say to to respond to this Jesus who's tracked you down from beyond the grave to offer you peace. And maybe it's time for some of you to say yes for the first time to Jesus. Should we just bow our heads? Let's just bow our heads and let me pray for us. It's a prayer you can say if you want to believe in Jesus for the first time. It's also a prayer you can say if you've been believing in Jesus for many years. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I see that you are Lord, and that is wonderful. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm lost Lord Jesus, I know that without you, death is Lord. I'm sorry for the things that I do in the darkness, in my lostness. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for rising again to give me life. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my God. And walk with me through this world and into your eternity. Amen. If you've prayed a prayer like that, perhaps for the first time, I'd love to shake you by the hand and, and perhaps give you a book that will help you to take the first few steps uh, with Jesus. But don't take those steps alone. It's a team sport following Jesus. So do tell somebody here that you've made that decision and let's walk together with Jesus. Thanks so much.